0: Please turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. There's a young man who once said, I am in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I'm puzzled about worldly things. What must I forsake? He was advised colored clothes for one thing, get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white, stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you're sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. Amen. (laughs) To to shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to improve upon his work. Uh, This answer was given to a young man in one of the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. The second century. In the first century the Apostle Paul was fighting the first and greatest theological and practical battle that the church would face, and that was the battle against legalism. And he was not able to eradicate it. Legalism is always there. It's always trying to creep into the church. And Paul says, that's slavery. That's slavery. But it's a slavery that we don't have to submit to. I want you to read with me in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And again, I testify to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his own judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Wow. (laughs) Paul's angry. Do you hear it? Because he doesn't want God's people to be enslaved, and he is reminding God's people that slavery is a choice. You do not have to choose to be enslaved to the law, and to legalism, and to the death that it brings into your spiritual life. Notice again verse 1, he says, Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You have a choice. So why is it that we surrender our freedom in Christ and we come under the slavery of legalism? Why do we do that? You know why? Because we're easily deceived. And if you think that you're not easily deceived, if you think that you've matured beyond that or you're really resistant to ever being deceived by Satan's attacks to be pulled back into legalism and its enslavement, then you are really, really, really vulnerable to Satan's attacks because you are easily deceived. Started all the way back in the garden, Eve was deceived by the serpent Satan, Adam followed her deception, and as a result, we are all born foolish. We're born in slavery and we are born easily deceived. When we are reborn in Jesus Christ and God's Spirit comes to live inside of us once again, our spirit is connected to God's Spirit. The debt of our sin is removed. We are reborn. We are freed from the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay it. Christ did. We're freed from the power of sin. His resurrection power through His Spirit is dwelling in us. We don't have to submit to sin. We're freed from the law. We're freed from all these things, but we are still vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We're still vulnerable. Look again what he says in verse 1. He says, Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. They were slaves before they knew Jesus Christ, and they're being tricked or tempted to go back into slavery. Look back in chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, before you were a believer in Jesus Christ, you did not know God, You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. See what he's saying? Before you knew Jesus Christ, you were a slave to idolatry and the immorality that comes with that idolatry. But then, as he's going to say later in chapter 5, you were running well. You believed in Jesus Christ and you were running well. But literally, somebody cut in on you. The images of of a runner running down the track in the race and the rules were, don't disturb one another while somebody came in and hindered you. They bumped you off the track and now you're being slaved again, now this time, to legalism. Before it was to paganism and idolatry and immorality, but now it is to legalism. And Paul addresses legalism first because it is so subtle. If a person is living and interacting in a believing community and they begin to display very unchristian kinds of characteristics, there are outbursts of anger and there's all kinds of jealousy or immorality, well, that's obvious, isn't it? We say, hmm, that's not good. But a lot of times, the person that's a legalist, we say, wow, that person's really spiritual. Have you been on a retreat and somebody stands up to give a testimony? And you know, they only have people who are really spiritual give testimonies, right? A person stands up and they start talking about their four-hour quiet times. They get up at 3 a.m. and they go till 7. How do you feel? I feel guilty. I do. I feel guilty. And, and usually the next week I try that. I, you know? <laughs> well, that, that, they're giving the testimony, they're spiritual, I'll try that. I mean, I do, I feel guilty. Every time I hear those things and I try, it never really works well for me, and so I feel very condemned and frustrated. And, but don't you, you know, everybody sitting around and goes, wow, that's spiritual. So, my question for you this morning, is it spiritual? Is that 3 a.m. quiet time for four hours a mark of spiritual maturity? Maybe. I don't know. It could be. It really, it could be. But on the other hand, it might just be self-righteousness. It might be three hours or four hours in the morning before the sun rises, just trying to get smarter to put people in their place. I don't know. And you don't know. But a lot of times we paint maturity as these external things. And really it's just legalism. Legalism is really subtle. It's really subtle. And sometimes it looks really good within the body of Christ, and we even praise it. But it's not freedom in Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do as we begin this whole discussion is let's make sure that we're all on the same page. What do we mean by legalism? Or more specifically, let's start with this. What is not necessarily legalism? First, obedience is not Necessarily legalism. Okay? Paul tells the believers in the church of Ephesus, let him who steals, steal no longer. Apparently there were believers in Ephesus stealing. That's why the imperative is phrased like this. He says, stop stealing and you should obey what I'm saying. Don't steal any longer. And if they stop stealing, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is a good thing. I suppose that they could do it out of legalistic motives thinking that they are earning more love from Jesus Christ because they've stopped stealing and that'd be legalism but on the whole it's still better not to steal because you're going to have fewer bad consequences in your life so stop stealing obedience isn't necessarily legalism holiness is not necessarily legalism I mean genuine holiness actually is not legalism that's what you're called to Peter says quoting Leviticus he says be holy because God is holy Be like God. That's what you were designed to be. To display the very nature and attributes of God. And God is holy, so you should be holy. Now, being holier than thou, that's legalism. But but real holiness, genuine Christ-like character, that's not legalism. A lot of times in our circles, our evangelical circles, and our evangelical circles where we really promote the grace of God, we have this uh, anti-legalism legalism. Okay. When well, we hear anything about obedience or holiness and we go, "Oh, that sounds legalistic." You know, or anything that's structured at all and we go, "Oh, that's legalistic." Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Let me give you another one. Self-discipline is not necessarily legalistic. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I buffet my body and I make my body my slave because it is through this body that I worship God and I don't want this body participating in things that are evil or sinful, so I discipline my body. He tells uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, he says, discipline yourself unto godliness. And so self-discipline is not necessarily legalism. Could it be? Yeah, if I was self-disciplined, in order to earn the favor of God or to prove that I'm more righteous than another person, that that could be legalism. But self-discipline is not necessarily legalism. You see it in somebody's life and you don't have to say, wow, that's legalism. It's not necessarily. Good works are not necessarily legalism. Matter of fact, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul is not against good works. He is not against genuinely good works. That is, good works that God's Spirit produces through you that bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, not to you. Paul is not against good works. He says it very clearly in Ephesians 2.10 and Titus chapter 3. You are created for good works. Even effort is not necessarily legalism. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. He says, work it out, and the word that he uses for work it out is the word from which we get energy. Apply energy to the process of sanctification. So even effort is not necessarily legalism. What is legalism? Here's my definition. Brief. Very brief. Um, it's, uh, it's so subtle, it took me a little while writing to, and I played around with it even until last night. Illegalism is this, attempting to achieve a relationship with God, hey, that's justification, we spend a lot of time on that, right? Being declared to be in right relationship with God, justification, attempting to achieve that, or to grow in a relationship with God, that's sanctification, through effort that is independent from the finished work of Christ and the empowering work of His Spirit. Okay? The issue is work that is independent from the finished work of Christ and the present empowering work of His Spirit, what He is doing through you. And it could be for justification or it could be for sanctification. Now, uh, let me break that down. If you didn't get that whole thing written out, sorry, I tried to be as concise as I could. Um, But the slides will be up on the internet, or I'll put this one back up at the end. But let me break it down for you. It includes justification by works. Entering into a relationship with God based upon what I can do. This is much of Christianity, and it is all of the rest of the religions of the world. You get a relationship with God through what you can do. You can earn enough righteousness so that God will accept you, and you can do enough good things that they will offset your bad things to merit or earn or deserve a relationship with God. You can do it. So try harder. All the religions of the world say do. A lot of Christianity says do. God says done in Jesus Christ. Okay? Second, it could be justification by faith and by works. Yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ and I have to do a lot of good works in order to earn a relationship with God. If number one was a lot of Christianity, number two includes another big section of Christianity. That yes, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you have to add your good works on top of that in order to merit or earn a relationship with God, to be declared in right relationship. Now, we're not talking about the issue that James discussed. And if you missed James chapter 2, about three or four weeks ago. Please go back and listen to that. James is talking about sanctification. Not justification, but sanctification. He uses the same terminology, but he's talking about being declared right or righteous in the eyes of needy believers around you, and that happens through faith and through good works that God produces through you, like clothing those who don't have a coat or don't have bread to eat, okay? Totally different topic that James is addressing. Third area of legalism is transformation by works apart from God's Spirit. James is talking about transformation through works that are done through God's Spirit. Sanctification or transformation by works apart from God's Spirit is legalism. When I believe that I can change my character or I believe that I can do something that really pleases God on my own apart from His leading and His empowering, that is legalism. Fourth, evaluating others based upon external standards of righteousness. What I declare is righteousness or sanctification, which is external, and imposing that upon others, that is legalism. That's legalism. And all these forms are constantly trying to infiltrate the church and to crush the vitality that we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ that's free. Do you know that when you do good works, you do not earn more of God's love? Do you know that when you do works that are not good, you do not lose any of God's love? Now, I'll probably get an email about that one. When you fail and you sin, you are not less loved by God. You are not more loved by God because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God loves every man, woman, and child that he has ever created. And he loves them so much that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for their sins. He loves them perfectly and completely, and they're not more loved because they receive that free gift. Nor are you more loved when you perform better. You can't earn more of God's love and you cannot lose God's love. That is the grace of God, people. Okay, that's the foundation, that's security. That's what will give you strength and confidence to grow and be changed by Jesus Christ. If you are always living under fear that you're going to lose some of God's love, or that God likes you less today because of your sin, then your spiritual life is going to be all over the map. You will not have the confidence and security to grow in Jesus Christ until you settle this fundamental issue. This is what grace means. You are secure in Jesus Christ. He loves you. Can't earn more of it, and you can't lose it. And it's free. Okay? It's free. And anything outside of that is pulling us into legalism. And we are constantly susceptible to that. Peter got pulled into it. The apostle Peter got pulled into it. These Galatian believers, Paul says, who bewitched you, who cast a spell on you and pulled you away from the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ into legalism. How did it happen? I want you to turn with me back in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2. Let's read again. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Look down in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. What he's saying is, You have been deceived. And he knows, it's a rhetorical question, who hindered you? He knows. It's the Judaizers, because they came in and they said, well, what you need to do to be accepted by God is you need to keep the Jewish uh, calendar, the feasts and festivals, and you need to get circumcised. And Paul says they're deceiving you, they're lying to you. Because if you buy into the law as a system, it's a whole system. A little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough. Or as he says here in verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the entire law. James says it this way, if a man stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. Because the whole law stands together. So Paul isn't going through the Old Testament law and picking out some laws and saying these apply and these don't apply. He's saying this is a system of approaching God through your own self-effort. And if you buy into that system, then Christ is of no benefit to you. Now, We have to address this issue. What does he mean by the significance of circumcision? Let's start by looking first at the significance of circumcision for the Jews. Why does he bring up this issue? Well, first of all, you need to know that for the Jews, it was never considered that they earned eternal life through circumcision. Now, some may have gotten off theologically, but remember, Genesis 15 Abraham believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. He has a permanent relationship with God because he believes just through faith. Now, Genesis 17, that happens years later, he's given this, uh, this rite of circumcision. And the significance was that it was an outward testimony of his confidence in God's promises. Okay? He's confident that God will give him descendants. He is confident that God will preserve his racial descendants so that he can fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham through these racial descendants. So every racial descendant that comes from Abraham is told, circumcise your sons. It's a sign of confidence that you believe God's going to fulfill those promises. And when he does, you want your children to participate. You want your kids to participate. And you want your kids to be able to enjoy and participate In whatever blessings God has given at that point in time. That's why you circumcise your children. It's a a sign of confidence that God will fulfill his promises. It's not a sign of whether a person has eternal life or doesn't have eternal life. That's not the issue. Let me give you the perfect illustration of this. Hold your place here in Galatians. Turn all the way back to Exodus chapter 4. Now Exodus chapter 4, uh, God has already appeared to Moses in the wilderness, he's seen the burning bush, he has been instructed that his role will be to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he's on his way to meet his brother Aaron because he wants some help. He doesn't want to have to speak on his own, he's fearful, he doesn't think he speaks well, and so he's on his way to meet Aaron. So look in chapter 4 and verse 24. It says, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on there? <laughs> you know, you read those three verses and you go, "Skip, move on, man. What That's really important. Is Moses a believer in Yahweh? What do you think? Does he possess eternal life, do you think? I think he does. He just saw the burning bush. Okay? Wow. If anybody's a believer in Yahweh, Moses knows Yahweh exists and that he's powerful. He he is a a believer in Yahweh. So what's going on here? Well, he has not circumcised his sons. So now Moses, the one who is about to go and lead Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, into uh, the promised land to begin to enjoy the blessings of God's promises that he has given through Abraham to the nation of Israel. He's the leader, but he has not displayed this outward sign of confidence in God's ability to accomplish his promises. So God is about to kill him. And that's what happened in Israel. If you didn't circumcise your sons, it says literally you're cut off from your people. That is, at the very least, you're removed from the the nation, but normally put to death. death. It's not a sign of... Does a person possess eternal life or not possess eternal life? It's saying, you're not going to get to participate in the earthly blessings that God has brought to his people. Okay, that's what circumcision meant for the Jews. Now, by the time Paul is writing, the Jews have taken this rite of circumcision and they've said, Gentiles, if you want to be a part of God's family, then obviously you need to keep the festivals and the feasts, and you need to make the sacrifices, but if you're really, really serious about about participating in God's kingdom here on earth, then you have to get circumcised. And if you don't, you are, you're not in. You're not in. So this is a badge or this is a mark. This is proof that you're really serious about wanting to be a part of God's work here on the earth. And if you don't do it, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices you make at the temple, how many alms that you give. It doesn't matter. This is the sign, this is the badge. And so these people are now coming in and saying, if you want to participate, they're Jewish Christians, but they're coming in and they're saying, if you want to participate in God's kingdom, you Galatians, then you have to get circumcised and keep the festivals. And Paul's saying, no, if you get circumcised, what you're saying is you're buying into the whole system. And as soon as you buy into that whole system, you know what happens? The power of Christ's grace in your life becomes impotent, there is no power. Because you can't live under law and grace. You can't live under both systems. The two systems simply do not work. Now, I want you to turn with me back to the book of Galatians. And look what Paul says about circumcision here. Chapter 5, verse 5. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness... Okay, it's not external, it's internal. By, by God's Spirit dwelling in us through faith, we are confident that, that because we have believed in Jesus Christ, one day we will receive this completed gift of the righteousness of Christ. We believe in that. It's not external, it's internal. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Chapter 6, verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Circumcision, Paul says, is completely irrelevant because it is an external mark. That's all that it is. So it doesn't mean anything. Whether you get circumcised or don't get circumcised, it doesn't matter. Now keep your place here again and look at one other illustration in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was a Greek. What in the world? <laughs> I thought Paul said circumcision doesn't matter, so why did he have this young man Timothy circumcised? Isn't Paul then being legalistic? No. Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? So that Timothy could do ministry among the Jews. Paul's point is simply this. Circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And so I will become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. So if this young man that I am called to raise up and to pass ministry along to so that he can minister to Gentiles as well as to Jews, we'll have him circumcised because it doesn't really matter. You see, what's important is what Paul believed about circumcision. And what he believed about circumcision was it doesn't matter. But he turns to the Galatian believers and he says, you should absolutely not get circumcised because you're being told that it means something. And if you believe that it means something and it earns righteousness in God's sight, then you should by all means resist that because that's legalism. Do you see how subtle that is? What could be legalism for the Galatians is not legalism for Timothy. Does that make sense? What's legalism for one person may not be legalism for another. It might be obedience. That's why legalism is so subtle. It has to do with your attitudes and your perceptions and your belief and your faith, not necessarily just with this external or outward act, which doesn't make you more or less righteous than any other person. But if you buy into this whole system that you can earn the favor of God in any respect, you have drifted into a system of legalism. You are secure in your relationship with God, because Jesus Christ paid it all. That's the end. Now, as you walk with Jesus Christ, it is his spirit that empowers you. But if you don't depend on his spirit, and you're depending on what you can accomplish, Christ is of no benefit to you. Meaning, he cannot empower you through the system of the law. Look with me again. Chapter 5 of Acts or I mean of Galatians, excuse me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, "'Behold, I, Paul, say to you, "'that if you receive circumcision, "'Christ will be of no benefit to you. "'And I testify again to every man "'who receives circumcision "'that he is under obligation "'to keep the whole law. "'You have been severed from Christ, "'you who are seeking to be justified by law. "'You have fallen from grace.'" Paul is not saying that they're losing their salvation, okay? What he's saying is, you have removed yourself from the system of grace, that is confidence in Christ's past work and his present power. You've removed yourself from the system of grace, and you've put yourself under the system of law. And he says it three different ways. If you do that, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. That is literally, uh, you have been made inoperative. Okay, Grace is made inoperative in your life. It's rendered ineffective in your life. You have fallen from the system of grace, which means you were in the system of grace and now you're out of the system of grace and the result is slavery. The result is slavery. So how do you know if you are suffering from legalism? How do you know? I'm going to give you a few uh, symptoms of legalism. Turn with me to the Gospels. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. What's that sound like? Legalism. Okay? People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then consequently they viewed others with contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Interesting, huh? Who's he praying to? Himself. himself. <laughs> right? Very God-like words and if anybody heard him, they go, wow, what a prayer. He's talking to God. No, he's talking to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, obviously his eyes are open, or even like him, that guy, that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get, okay? First symptom of legalism, are you proud about your spiritual life? Are you proud about your spiritual life? The longer you grow and mature in Jesus Christ, you will be more and more and more humbled, as you mature to think that God would accept people like us <laughs> even the best among us if this is the righteousness of God we're all working right down here in this margin right here okay like zero to four not we'd like to think of ourselves as 75 to 100 no are you proud about what you've accomplished spiritually or about where you are in your maturity? The closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more you see how deep sin is rooted in the flesh and, and how difficult it is in this life until we see Jesus Christ face to face just to get it out. It's gross and it's disgusting. It's so humbling. Pride is the first symptom. Okay, second, are you judgmental? Do you look at, around at others and say, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm not like him or her or what You look at what this guy says. You know, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I thank you that I'm not like all these people around me. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I think Jesus might say, but do you have pride? Are you covetous? Those are two symptoms. Uh, Look back in Galatians. Let me give you two more. Chapter 5, verse 7. Paul says, you were running well. Who cut in on you? who knocked you off the path, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Are you disturbed? Are you you unsettled? Are you discouraged? See, the reason that uh, legalism is so crushing is it's based upon personal performance. So, You set a standard that you can achieve, and you experience pride. You exceeded your own standard. Or you set a standard, and you don't achieve it, and you're discouraged and despairing. And then maybe somebody comes along and says, well, if you really were a Christian, then you would do X, Y, and Z. And you say, maybe I'm not a Christian. And these folks are wondering, and they are disturbed. I don't know of anything more unsettling than wondering, do you really possess eternal life? You know what, people? You can know this morning that you possess eternal life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins? Do you? Then you have eternal life. Okay? The first thing that I do when I'm working with a brand new believer is I teach eternal security. Because that is the foundation for spiritual growth. You don't earn a relationship with God, and you can't lose it. You can't even give it back. Wow. That's freedom. That's security. But people are coming in, and they're stirring these folks up, and they are disturbed. They're troubled. They're, they're insecure in their relationship with God. And what, what's the result? Well, then they try to do more. Instead of stepping back and trusting in Christ, saying, no, I'm looking to the cross for my security, not looking to myself. Fourth characteristic, are you divided? Do you live in a divided community? The Christians split often over issues that are, they're external, they're inconsequential. Sometimes Christians split over issues that are significant, you know, some believe in the deity of Christ and some don't. Well, we got a problem there and we're probably going to have a church split, okay? That's a good reason to split. But a lot of times it's over, over external things. You want to know what are the legalistic type issues that we fight about? Well, what are the internal stuff? You know, what are, what are Christians judging each other based upon today? You know, our, our internal conflicts, where are they coming from? Let me give you a few uh, things that I've seen. One is uh, level of knowledge about Bible and theology, knowledge. We live in a, a college community, highly educated Church. We're a Bible church. We teach lots of Bible theology. And so a lot of times the mark of spirituality in our little group becomes knowledge. How much do you know? But you know what? Knowledge is not a mark of spiritual maturity. It's not. There was a, a, a professor, I don't know if he's still in place, but he was a professor of uh, the school of theology at a university uh, in the southeast. And he was an atheist. It's kind of wacky, isn't it? Why bother? Well, he was an atheist. He knew the Bible. He knew original languages. He knew theology. He knew all that stuff. But for him, it was more a a study of cultural anthropology or sociology. He was an atheist. He probably knew the Bible better than any of us here. But he was not spiritually mature. He was not even a Christian. And you can accumulate all kinds of knowledge and not be spiritually mature. But around here, if you know theology and you know the answer and you're in Bible studies and you can give it out that's seen as a mark of maturity. It's not. Maturity is character. we're going to talk about it a lot next week. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's character transformation that you cannot achieve, and you can't even get it by reading more and more and more and more and more books. And now, is it a good thing to be involved in a Bible study home church group? Well, sure, I think so, generally. Yeah, you know, we advertise them. We I like, I like them, that's good, but you know, you could be in that study and you do all of your work every week so that others around you will be impressed. And then there are these areas of your life that Jesus is poking on and you're saying, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. But when you get to your study, everybody's amazed at how much you know and they say, wow, how spiritual. No, uh-uh. That's not it. But we divide a lot of times or we rank people based upon knowledge Rather than character, there are a lot of people who have been in the body of Christ for centuries in our history, who probably didn't know a lot of Bible, but they had an incredibly deep relationship with Jesus Christ, an incredibly deep character. That's the mark of of maturity. So, we divide over uh, knowledge. That's one thing I've seen. um, Another that I saw a lot of times in uh, college ministry was involvement in missions. Okay, the really spiritual people have a heart for the world. Okay? Those are the girls you want to date. The ones who are, they're into missions because they are mature and they have a heart for the world, right? So when I was going through college, uh, involvement in Latin America, that was big stuff. Okay? And then later it shifted to the 1040 window. The Muslim world. If you're really spiritual, you you left Latin America behind, and you went to the 1040 window, okay? And then it shifted out of the 1040 window in the Muslim world into China, and when they try to say, well, but that's kind of in the 1040 window too, because it's big. So it all shifted over to China. And now, if you're really spiritual, what are you interested in in (laughs) missions? Everybody knows it's Africa. Adults, you may not have known that. Now you know. If you want to be really spiritual, you're interested in Africa because Bono says so. <laughs> okay? That's why. So is it more spiritual to be interested in missions in Africa or in China? It might be neither. If God is put on your heart that he wants you to give or to pray or to go to the Muslim world but you want to go to Africa because it's hip then that's sin for you that's legalism you are being conformed to the Christian world's standard of righteousness and you're going to experience slavery not freedom because it's not what God has called you to you need to go where God has called you that's where you'll experience freedom see how subtle that is? involvement in missions could be legalism could be Or it could be really, really spiritual maturity. And I can't judge you. I don't know, because I don't know the way that God is leading you. I don't know. Among families, one of the issues of legalism has, has always been how do you raise your kids? A few years ago, a curriculum came out. It's called Raising Kids God's Way, Growing Kids God's Way. Can you imagine? Growing kids God's way. So if you're not using this curriculum, then you are growing kids Satan's way. (laughs) You know? Sorry, James Dobson. You're not doing it God's way. This is God's way. Right here. And it can be contained in 150 pages. (laughs) Wow. Okay? Okay? And so we look around and we judge the other families because you're not doing it God's way. You're not raising your kids correctly. You're not putting them in the right school because they should be in a private Christian school. No, 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 they should be homeschooled. That's more spiritual. No, they should be in public school because then they can really be missionaries. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how God has called you to raise your children because I don't know your family and your kids and the specific needs. You may have three or four kids and they're all different. They all have different needs. And you need to listen to the voice of God because if you are deeply in relationship with God through the power of His Spirit, secure in Jesus Christ, you can hear His voice and He will lead you and that is freedom. Okay, that's freedom. And it all starts with the security that we have in Jesus Christ. So as we close, I want you to just ask yourself, are you trusting in anything other than or in addition to Jesus Christ to merit a relationship with God? Or are you trusting in Anything other than the power of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, to grow in your relationship with Christ? Or are you looking around at others and evaluating them based upon your standards of righteousness? All those things will bring slavery into your life. Let's take a few moments and go before the Lord and just ask him to bring conviction into our hearts and then freedom through Jesus Christ. I'll close this in just a moment in prayer. Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. I thank you that all of our debts are paid in him. I thank you, Father, that there is no one beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to live in that security, that we would extend that that hope to others. I pray, Father, in anticipation of what we look at next week, that you would I just bring great freedom and illumination, wisdom into our minds as we learn how to, how do we apply this? How do we live out this freedom in Jesus Christ that he purchased for us? I pray, Father, for each person here that they would experience in a fresh way It's the invigoration that, that comes from knowing that we're secure in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.